this past week in Israel was the day of remembering the Holocaust. And at a time like that in Israel, there's a certain moment, I think it's 10 o'clock in the morning, alarms are sounded all over the country. Everyone stops whatever they're doing. Cars on the highways stop, people walking downtown stop. If you're in a car, you stop your car, you get out of your car and stand in silence. It's a time of remembering. It's good for us to remember. It's good to, uh, for us to remember that God has preserved us. He promised to save a remnant no matter how fierce the enemy's attack would be against us, no matter how great the effort would be to destroy us. God has promised to always save a remnant, that there would always be on the face of the earth a portion of Israel that stays faithful to God no matter what and gives thanks to the Lord. King David wrote a psalm, Psalm 124, long before the Holocaust, but at a time of great difficulty in which he was recalling the faithfulness of God. Let me read to you. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared against us, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So we're here to declare that God is faithful to us and we wanna be grateful to him and we are alive. We are alive and we stand here together to declare that the God of Israel lives, that the Messiah of Israel, though he died, he rose from the dead and he conquered the power of death and the power of sin. And not only have we been delivered from slavery in Egypt, we've been delivered from the slavery of the kingdoms of this world. And so here we are, we're alive. We wanna say God is alive. God is faithful to us. And we mourn those who have died, but we celebrate the victory of God in the midst of sorrow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. You have preserved us. Am Yisrael Chai, the people of Israel lives. Hitler's gone. We are alive. Lord, the Messianic movement is growing and knowledge of Messiah is growing all over the face of the earth. And let it be that your glory fills the earth, the way the waters cover the seas. We dedicate this time to you, knowing this, Lord, we are refreshed in your presence. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. 
Baruchata Adonai Lahenu Melecha Olam Asher Kitsheno Bamisvatav Vetzivano Lasok Badivrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. We read in this week's Torah portion about a very difficult episode that in many ways is hard to explain, that's so challenging that some people just would rather skip over it, but I think it'd be interesting to look at it. It's the story of Nadav and Avihu, and, and you know in the South, you say Nadab. <laughs> so let it be. And these were two sons of Aaron, the high priest, and they had experienced an amazing event of worship and praise in the presence of God that's described in the Torah portion in Leviticus 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Leviticus 9, verse 22, and, and look on and read in your translation to yourself as I'm reading out loud. It says this, Aaron raised his hands toward the people he blessed them and he came down from having offered the sin offering, the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron together entered the tent of meeting and they came out and they blessed the people. And then the glory of the Lord was visible to all the people. I want you to take notice of this. The invisible glory of the Lord became visible. Everyone experienced something of the glory of God's presence. And the glory of the Lord in Hebrew is, is kavod, which can be translated heavy or weight. And so you could say that the Lord was heavy that day. But it was not just a sensation of heaviness. There was something visible about the presence of the Lord. And this is challenging for people who think God in all of his forms is always invisible. On this day, it says the glory of the Lord was visible to all the people. Fire came forth from the presence of the Lord. It, that was a yikes moment, I'm sure. Consuming the burnt offering and the fat on the altar, and when all the people saw that, they shouted and fell on their faces. If you didn't know better, you would think this is like some charismatic event that's like getting out of control. But fire comes down from the Lord and it consumes the burnt offering. If you experienced that, I bet you wouldn't forget. It reminds me a bit of what happened with Elijah. Remember when he was confronting the prophets of Baal? And he was pouring water on the sacrifice and he, he challenged the prophets of Baal to see if their God would answer with fire. He didn't. But Elijah called to God and God sent fire down and it consumed the offering even though it was surrounded with a moat of water and water had been poured on it. So it was a moment like that. It's, it's like a turning point. And this was not just something a few people experienced. Everyone saw the glory of the Lord. Everyone saw the fire come down. 
And when all the people saw this, they shouted and they fell on their faces. That's the positive moment. And after this incredible moment, Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu, these two young men who were legitimate priests, though they were novices, they did something that crossed the line with the Lord. They decided that they would offer something that God considered strange fire. In Hebrew, Esh Zarah. And sometimes it's translated unauthorized sacrifice. Well, let's read about that. Leviticus 10, starting in verse 1. Then Nadav and Avihu, sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and offered Eshzerah, strange fire, unauthorized sacrifice before the Lord. Something he had not told them to do. They did this because they wanted to do it. And it was presumptuous, but it was more than presumptuous. There was something about it that crossed the line with the Lord. At this, verse 2, fire came from the presence of the Lord. But look what happens. It consumed them. Turns out they had a bad idea. Bad motive, bad intentions, bad action. They had just experienced the great glory of God and a holy moment. We Jews have this saying, two Jews, three opinions. But when the people are together as they were and they're all experiencing the holiness of God and, and the, the weight of God's glory is even visible to them, it's an awesome moment but there were these two guys. And something was so wrong about their hearts and the action that they took that the Lord consumed them. It wasn't their sacrifice that was consumed, it was them. And this reminds me a bit also of the difference between Cain and Abel. Remember, they offered their sacrifices and one was acceptable and the other wasn't. At this fire came forth from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died in the presence of the Lord. I have read a few commentators who, are try, who try to put a nice spin on this. But really, you can't. In, in fact, this is a really awkward part of the Bible. It's hard to explain. It's hard to process. The fact that this cost Nadav and Avihu their lives, that their sacrifices were not acceptable. In fact, they were abhorrent to the Lord. Now, there's a similar passage in the New Testament. The one we just read follows a, a particular form. It starts by describing this extraordinarily positive event, the, the worship and the outpouring of God's spirit, the presence of God being visible, palpable for everyone. That is so extraordinary. 
And then it shifts into a turn. The next episode we're going to read about follows the same form. There's an incredible moment of faith and mercy and the grace of God. So turn to Acts chapter 4. And this passage is just as difficult and in some ways even harder than what we just read. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. That's a miracle. It's, it's noteworthy, isn't it? It's extraordinary. Because everybody's got an opinion. But these were all together in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua. This is very important because verse 33 is telling us what's got their attention, what is motivating them, and what are they speaking to other people about? They're talking about the fact that Yeshua, who died, he was executed, that was public knowledge, that he not only died, but he rose from the dead. That was an amazing moment. That was an amazing fact. If he had not risen from the dead, we would have no basis for our hope. You see, his, his purpose, his mission of, as Messiah was to conquer the power of death. And it was also to conquer the power of sin. And in one fell swoop, he did both. When he was executed like a criminal and treated in barbaric ways, it looked like a tragedy, but it was not. It looked like a travesty, but it wasn't. It was part of God's secret work. And in fact, this was the way Yeshua went down, if you will. He went into the portals of death. And he started rescuing the dead. And he brought out of captivity those who had died before, but had been people of faith. And he started bringing them out. What a moment. And then he comes back to the very land where he had suffered so greatly. And he begins to reveal himself to his disciples in a lot of different ways. It was so challenging. What really touched them was that they had received forgiveness. That atonement had been made for them. They understood something now, that the death of Yeshua exonerated them from the punishment that they deserved. And his resurrection was, if you will, a down payment. It was like earnest money. It was a binder that they too would rise from the dead. And so they began to think of themselves as already participating in resurrection life. When they would be immersed in water, it was in connection to that. They were, they were reenacting, if you will, and identifying with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Messiah. 
It wasn't just a washing, it was a rising from the dead. It really got their attention. This is what they were talking about. With great power, let's say that, with great power, that's good. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua. No matter what happened after the death of Yeshua, they kept going. Do you remember their first response of disappointment? Well, they're not in disappointment right now. You can tell that. They're thinking, we didn't even see it coming. Proof of that is in the Brita Chadashah portion that we were reading from this week. After Yeshua um, took some of his close disciples up to that mountain and he was transfigured, and everyone who does laundry should read that passage because there's a reference to um, extraordinary laundering. <laughs> Seriously. But Elijah and Moses show up. And this is the first time Moses has set foot in the promised land, remember? And, and the disciples are like amazed. You know, like, let's make a shrine. We'll build a sukkah here. This would be a good place. Yeshua says, later boys. <laughs> but in Mark 9, as they're coming down the mountain, Yeshua warns them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, but they continued asking each other, Mazah, what is this rising from the dead? Yeshua said, you can't tell anyone what happened until I've risen from the dead. So they kept talking to each other. They didn't have a clue. They had no idea. They had been told, but they couldn't imagine. They knew the words, but they didn't understand the meaning. They did not have the experience. And so when they're getting together, one would say to the other, what is this rising from the dead? They didn't get it. And that is why when Yeshua was executed, they thought it was all over. And when he rose from the dead, it was like, you know, he told us. We didn't have a clue. We had no idea what he was talking about. Remember, I asked you, you didn't know. The other one says, I asked you, you didn't have a clue. And you, you were guessing and you were completely wrong. They were trying to process it, but they never could figure it out. There are things that God says he's gonna do, and we think we've figured it out. And we make our theology conform to our own understanding, but we don't know if we're right about some of those details. That's why we need to be generous with each other about some of these things. But at this moment, at this moment, the resurrection of Yeshua has captured their attention and they understand something of what it means. They've received the Holy Spirit and they have received now power from God. 
they understand that not only did the mission of Messiah accomplish forgiveness, it accomplished resurrection life, but not only that, having returned to heaven, Messiah now sends the Holy Spirit so that each one of us can become a tabernacle, a little sanctuary for God. Each one of us, not just a select few, but each one of us can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you may know some believers and you can't imagine that they're actually filled with the Holy Spirit. You may think, well, they got, you know. Okay, the meter on the tank is not at empty, but the goal that God has is that you would be filled and continue to be filled and that you would overflow, that the Holy Spirit would be filling you and you would be immersed in the Holy Spirit. So they appreciated what Yeshua had done and now they were prepared to testify to other people, to tell other people. Do you remember Yeshua told his disciples, you stay together in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is given to you. Then you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the furthest parts of the world. Then you can. In other words, do not try this on your own. You can't do it. But when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you can. And they are, with great power. The second part of verse 33 is extremely important. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. What was at work? God's grace. The unmerited favor of the Lord. In Hebrew, chen. Say that with me. Chen. The grace of God. The favor of God. The unmerited, undeserved blessings of God were so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Well, actually there were needy people among them. But none of those needy people continued in their poverty. So when someone had need, others cared enough about them to do something for them. Here's the explanation. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. This was amazing. I'm in Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. This is an extraordinary experience, not duplicated outside of Jerusalem and outside of that generation. In fact, later in the book of Acts and, and in the epistles, you find that when Paul goes out among the nations and he starts establishing congregations, he doesn't even think that he can receive normal financial support from them because he thinks they will like get all confused about motivations 
and money. And so he teaches them to tithe, which is a compulsory donation in, among the Jewish people. And he tries to encourage them to be cheerful givers and to give free will offerings above and beyond and so forth. But he's not even willing, he doesn't think he can take any financial support because he thinks it'll get all twisted in their minds what's going on. So this extraordinary situation in Jerusalem is not typical of what happens next. In this situation, no one's being taught to give like this. It's really the work of God's grace. That's what's happening. And the powerful experience of the resurrection of Messiah. Those, those are the transformations that are happening. You can't teach people to act like this. And if you try to compel them, you will end up with a totalitarian system. It could be communist, it could be socialist, but in essence it will be taxation. And it'll look like something very different from this. And it can even distort into something like this. What's yours is mine. Which becomes like uh, disrespectful and even covetous and thievery. From time to time. Those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So the ones who had need were coming to the apostles in the community. They were part of the community. And there were others around them who, who felt like what wealth they had really belonged to the Lord. And they wanted it to be used for the community of faith. And then we see some examples uh, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And this also refers, refers to a, a pattern that you see during those times. That people would have a given name, but they'd also have like an affectionate name in the community. You remember that uh, Joshua, I think was given the name Hosea, uh, which means, it's like a plea, God save us. And Moses wouldn't call him that. Um, he would call him Yehoshua. Salvation is from God. Or you could say, God has saved us. So, <laughs> you know, God save us is walking around. <laughs> and Moses is saying, God has saved us. God has saved us, come here. <laughs> Help me now. So Joseph, good Jewish name, is given another name by the apostles, Barnabas, son of encouragement. He sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. That's the extraordinary and positive part of the story. So it follows the same form as the story we read about in Torah. 
That's the positive part. Believers were moved with great gratitude and generosity, and they had extraordinary concern for the well-being of others. And they didn't look at their wealth as simply private. They took the idea of tzedakah. Say that Hebrew word with me, tzedakah, which means justice and righteousness. We read about it in the prophet Isaiah last week. But it also means charity. They took it to a high and exceptional level because in, in the community of Israel, charity was connected to justice. There were certain aspects of, of giving that were required, that were compulsory. And charity towards the poor was part of that. It applied to every landowner, every farmer, everyone engaged in agricultural enterprise, every orchard owner. They were given instructions about their own land. And here are just two examples. One part was this. You can't harvest the corners of the fields. You have to leave those for the needy, for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the elderly, the hungry, the immigrant. You have to leave what grows there for them to take for themselves so that everyone had an opportunity to be fed and no one would have no access to food. You had to do that. Also, there was a rule that after you harvested, the same, the same kind of people, the poor and needy, the oppressed, the immigrant, the, the orphan, the widow, were allowed to come onto your land and come after you and pick up what you had not yet harvested. You had to leave the fields in that way. And people could argue and say, but this land is my land. It is not your land. They could say, I have the rights as a landowner to decide what happens. It's, it's my land. I, I paid for it. It's my land. I worked it. I cultivated the land. I bought the seed. I, I sowed the seed. I took care of it. I watered and fed it. I paid the bills. I hired the harvesters. It's my work and my land. And the Lord says, that's true. However, the whole earth belongs to me. So you're more like a tenant. And the Lord, the Lord could say, actually, I worked the earth. I shaped it. I formed it. I created it. It belongs to me. You can use it on my terms. So this idea of charity is inseparable from the idea of justice. The disciples in this one community took this idea to an extraordinary level. They would sell their property, they would sell their valuables and bring the proceeds to the apostles in order to provide for other believers who were in need. They considered the needy believers as if they were their own mishpacha, their own family that they cared about. And so they had this incredible openness 
And you can't teach that. You can talk about it, but you can't push it deep into people's hearts. Only God can do that. That was the grace of God at work in the people. Extraordinary. Now for the negative part. There's one couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, they want to make it seem like they're part of this great, generous group of disciples. But really, they're not so generous. And what's interesting is Ananias' name. That's the Greek way of saying his name. His Hebrew name is Hanania. Say that with me. Hanania, which means grace of God. So every time he's going around, walking from here to there, people are saying, grace of God, how are you? Shalom, grace of God. It could go to your head. <laughs> I'm the grace of God. No, you're not. That's your name. It's supposed to be your proclamation. So Ananias and Sapphira, his name means the grace of God. Her name means sapphire. Or there are some other gems and precious stones it could mean too. So they decide to sell some property that they have and then to bring the proceeds to the apostles. But they want other people to think that they're part of this exceptionally generous group of believers. And so they hold back some of the proceeds and they agree to lie about it and say they're bringing the full amount. So they know what they're doing. It's intentional. It's their agreement. We're going to say we're bringing everything, but let's keep some for ourselves. In fact, it would have been okay to keep some. It was their property. They had the right to do with it as they saw fit. Nothing wrong with that. But they wanted to give the public impression that they were more generous than they really were. They wanted other people to think they were like Joseph of Cyprus, Barnabas, who really did sell property he had, a field, and brought the proceeds to the apostles. They wanted, it, they wanted to be viewed that way. Let's read about this part of the episode, Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. There was a man named Ananias, or Hananiah, together with his wife, Sapphira, and they also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, this story, i got to warn you, this is a difficult story. It's awkward. It even gets into the bizarre. Verse 3. Peter said, Hanania, how is it that Hasatan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? That's a way of saying, you could have kept the whole amount. You could have kept half and brought half. 
You could have kept 90% and brought 10%. You could have done anything. But what made you think of doing such a thing? What's such a thing? Pretending to bring the whole amount so that other people would think that's what you had done. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Hananiah heard this, he fell down and died. So the story gets awkward. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And here, it gets even more awkward. And then some young men came forward, they wrapped up the body, they carried him out, and they buried him. This is bizarre. He dies, and they just take him right to the cemetery, dig a hole and put him in it. His wife doesn't even know. She will. <laughs> yeah, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, so Sapphire, tell me, is this the price you and Hananiah got for the land? And she said, yes, sir, it is. That's the price. When Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So at least, you know, they ended up together. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole community of faith and all who heard about these events. No kidding. <laughs> these stories are connected. They follow the same form and the same sequence. This great outpouring of faith and mercy, of grace, of generosity, followed by something terrible that stands really in opposition to what had just happened. Now these two episodes, the first in Torah and the second in the book of Acts, They've been given to us in order to teach us, to instruct us, and to touch our hearts and our minds. And I want to encourage you to ponder these two stories and see how the Lord can use them to strengthen your own resolve to be generous and gracious and full of love and faith. I can tell you this, I don't have any simple explanation. I can't just give you like something pithy about all this. These are difficult stories. But we shouldn't avoid them, we should learn from them. So what to do? In Psalm chapter 50, verse 14, there's some great advice. Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vows you made to the Most High. Two important things that go together, make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. You see, everything starts with love of God. And love 
expresses itself with gratitude. So make thanks, thankfulness your sacrifice to God. You see, there are times when the prophets of Israel say what God is saying. I'm sick of your sacrifices. I want your hearts. Obedience is better than a sacrifice. I'm tired of what you're doing. I don't accept your sacrifices. I'm looking for a broken and contrite heart. I'll draw close to those. You can keep following old forms and trusting in those. I'm looking for the same thing I've always been looking for, a heart that's tender towards me. Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vows you made to the Most High. That second part's important because there are times when we experience the power of God, the mercy, the provision of God, healing, breakthroughs, provision of different kinds, and we are so filled with gratitude and so filled with thanksgiving and so filled with faith that we say to God, I'll I'll give you anything, or I'll give you this, or I'll give you that. And then later on, we start thinking, what got into me? What was I thinking? And the advice of the psalmist is this. When you were making those commitments to the Lord, that's when you were thinking clearly. That's when your mind was working right and your heart was working right. Stick with that. Keep the vows you made to the Most High. Hebrews 13, verse 15 says, let us offer through Yeshua a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. This is another aspect. Let it be that we keep praising the Lord. We keep telling others, we keep telling him how good he is to us how much he has done. Let our hearts really be overflowing with gratitude. We need to train ourselves in this and then be strong in this. Keep doing it. This praise of God is important. This proclaiming to other people, I'm gonna stay with God. I'm gonna be faithful. And not just proclamation, but deed. Walking in faithfulness. Telling other people about why you're faithful to God what God has done for you. Yeah, there are some people who are think, will think that, that you're an idiot because you believe in God. Other people will think you're just naive or foolish. People will have all sorts of different explanations. Some people will think you're a heretic or abhorrent. Ignore them. Keep testifying about what God has done. Talk about the resurrection of Yeshua. Take it to the next level. Many times I've told you about that rabbi who, who was talking to me and said, I just can't understand how you as a Jew could believe that that one is the Messiah. And I said, it's worse than that. I believe he's Adonai. To which you went, <laughs> but then we had something to talk about. Not only do I believe he's Messiah, 
I know he's not a nine. He wasn't just a good guy. He wasn't just a wonderful teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just somebody special. It was the Lord come down to do for mankind what only God could do because no man could do it on his own. There was no sacrifice, human or animal, that could accomplish the permanent resolution of atonement for all mankind once and for all. Only God could do that. So, when we tell someone, a Jewish person, a Gentile, about the faithfulness of God and about what God has done, and they receive what we're saying, and our testimony becomes the beginning of their faith. And it becomes the moment that their life turns for the better. That's what you hold on to. Because every one of those people who responds that way will thank you and thank God for you. Go and ponder these things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us and we want to be faithful to you, filled with thanksgiving, loyal, having great allegiance to you, filled with power and boldness, where the grace of God is being so strong in us that we can be like rivers of living water because of your grace. And what flows out of us would bring healing to others, salvation to other people. Lord, let us be strong in you and in the power of your might that the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb, and not shrinking back from the fear of death, that these would allow us to overcome and to have victory through you. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Let's close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? And if you're standing by yourself, just shuffle over a tad. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.